Open the word of God with me for a few minutes to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, I told you that I'm in love with the last verse. And many believed on him there. What, what is there? There is they resorted to a wilderness place, a desert place where John the Baptist had baptized earlier. And that's where they found the Lord Jesus. And while we were singing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, I was thinking, that crowd could have been singing a song like that. And they had him right there in front of them. We have him right here with us. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Hallelujah. What a Savior. John chapter 10. Let me read to you quickly and comment briefly on these verses. For those of you that will wonder, that hear this sermon in the internet, from the internet, and you're wondering why is it so short, I want you to know that we've been already going for an hour and 50 minutes. That is 110 minutes, so don't feel that we've compromised in Greenville. We still love to get together and worship. It's just that you're connecting with us later in today's activities. John 10, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Amen. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Amen. amen and amen. amen. We have resorted to the Lord Jesus Christ today in this obscure place. The people of the world use the word resort for a holiday place where they can have a lot of fun and pleasure. And I hope that we look at the church of God as a resort. Amen. We sometimes call it a refuge, but it's a resort where we can go and have pleasure engaged in the activities of worship that the Lord's given us. Here we go. In John verse 10 and verse 30, Jesus had closed up his short explanation about salvation with the words, I and my Father are one. The Jews had provoked Jesus in verse 24 to tell them plainly and to stop making them doubt if he was the Messiah. I thought he had been rather plain over his three years of ministry thus far, but they're provoking and aggravating him and wanting him to declare it again. So at the end of these verses about salvation, when he's identifying himself as the Savior, Redeemer, sent by the Father in heaven, he said, I and my Father are one. Right. 
He and his father were one in purpose, one in plan, one in power. You, couldn't, you can't be plucked out of the hand of Jesus Christ, and you can't be plucked out of God's hand. You're secure. But there was more to it than that, and the Jews understood it as more than that because they accused him of blasphemy and as being a man claiming to be God. So he was saying, I am God. And we say, Amen. Yes, we say Amen. He was God, and he was a man, and that's why he was so perplexing to them who were not the sheep of Jesus Christ. They couldn't see or understand that he was both. He's the God-man. He's the fullness of the Godhead in a body. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Word made flesh. John 1.14. He is man and he is God. So he said in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now had they asked him to say that? Had they asked him to be plain? Is that pretty plain? Is that as short of a sentence as you can state about your relationship with God? I and my Father are one. Maybe he could have said, I am my Father, but I and my Father are one. They asked for it. They got it. What do scorners want to do when you give them what they wanted? Stone you. Get used to it. They wanted to do it to him. And we're not quite like him. He was perfect. He was full of good works. John the Baptist had declared him. He had dated prophecies for him and his ministry, and they stoned him. They wanted to stone him. So they took up stones in verse 31 to stone him. We could preach on that for an hour. About the risks, about the future contingencies that we will have if we live righteously for Christ Jesus. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The more you want to live a righteous life, the more that we want to preach righteous living, we're going to be hated. They will seek to stone us. And we're not trying to make ourselves martyrs. We just want to declare the truth. And the Bible warns us throughout both Testaments that there is perpetual animosity between the righteous and the wicked. There was animosity in the first family. No sooner had Eve given birth to her first two sons than the older son killed Abel. Why? Because he was righteous. Because he was righteous. Because he was good. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Much could be said, but you understand the situation. We're going to move through these verses. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. They had tried to do this in John chapter 8 when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. Which is the work that was mentioned here in verse 21. The work that took place with all of chapter 9. What was the good work? A man that was born blind and had spent his whole life blind was made to see perfectly. These good works, which one are you stoning me for? He's aggravating them and aggravating their crime by wanting to stone him when he had done so much good by supernatural divine power. So verse 32, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? It's just beautiful. He's a, while he's being gracious, he's provoking them to greater anger. 
by forcing them to a dilemma. What do I do with the good works? Because they knew he did good works. If you go over, let me just read it to you from Acts chapter 4. The, the man that went for 38 years uh, was lame at the, at the gate beautiful of the temple. Here's what the Jews said about him on trial. Here's what the leadership said. What shall we do to these men? That is the apostles. What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Why deny it? Fall down and worship him. Amen. So verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not. We're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. You're claiming to be the Messiah. You're claiming to be the Son of God. That's chapter 9, the last four verses. And you're claiming to be God. You're a man. And so we're going to stone you for blasphemy and for you being a man saying that you're God. Well, he was both. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. And he was a man. And he was God. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't quickly explained. It's called the great mystery of godliness. Amen. What is the first point of the great mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh. To have a man on earth that is also God is quite the miracle. Jesus answered them. He's going to appeal to two things in his defense. Scripture and his miracles again. First, Scripture. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If you read Psalm 82 last night, you found these words in verse 6. These are quoted from Psalm 82, verse 6. Jesus tells them, your Bible, your Bible, you want to stone me for blasphemy because your Bible says that I ought to be stoned for blasphemy. I've taken the name of the Lord in vain. So you want to trust the Bible? Your Bible says, I said, ye are gods. And God said that to magistrates, to kings, to princes, to rulers, to judges, that they're called gods. It is not inappropriate for us to call our civil rulers gods. We don't call fathers gods, and we don't call parents gods. We don't call husbands gods. We call them Lord, but we don't call them God. But we do call civil rulers gods because it's the most elevated sphere of authority on earth. It has the power of life and death. And so... God said that about the rulers of Israel in Psalm 82, but then he said, even though I've said that about you, I'm going to tear you to shreds for the terrible job you're doing. It is not our job to take care of bad civil rulers. God will do just a fine job at it. Amen. And he's perfect in going about it. So the Lord Jesus Christ appeals to Scripture in the 34th verse from Psalm 82. And here's his reasoning, verse 35. If he, if God called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? Why are you so worked up about my use of the word God? Your little magistrates that have to be told in writing what to do how to do it, when to do it, are put into office by writing. They have to be picked out, ordained, and put into office 
those little rulers that you have that have quite inferior offices to the one I'm about to describe, God called them gods. And you have it in your scripture, and it is the right word. When Jesus said scripture cannot be broken, he meant the word gods is exactly the right word. It shouldn't be kings, it shouldn't be magistrates, it shouldn't be principalities, it shouldn't be powers. In Psalm 82 and verse 6, it should be gods. Now if those lesser, inferior officers are called gods, why do you have a problem with me that my father has set apart to be the Messiah of Israel and has sent me into the world? I am the word of God. The word of God didn't come to me outlining what I was supposed to do. I am the word of God. I am the word made flesh. Why do you have a problem with me saying, I am the son of God? That's his reasoning. He appealed to the scriptures at a level they had never considered. Do you, it's simple now that we see it here on the page, but they could not see the, the simplicity of him using their own scriptures against them, that they were hypocrites, that they should be, they should be stoning every magistrate in Israel because all those magistrates in Israel were called gods, and yet they were such inferior officers that they had to be told everything, what to do, how to do, when to do it, where to do it. And then here comes one that the Father has set apart for himself in heaven and sent him down to earth. And you have a problem with him saying, I am the Son of God, when they're called gods? That's the reasoning. The words, the scripture cannot be broken, mean it's the right word. It's the word. And, uh, you know, I brought some Bibles this morning. But there's no time for those Bibles, and maybe that's okay. But we had, a, we had a verse used already just a few minutes ago by the presentation of Psalm 119, and the reference was made to Luke 4.4. 4. I'm going to read Luke 4.4 4 from the NIV, and let's see what it says about every word of God. You know Luke 4.4. 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Luke 4.4 4 in the NIV. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. You say, well, that's the NIV. That's a terrible Bible. Bob Jones would never use a Bible like that. Okay, then let's use the English Standard Version and just check it out. Since I haven't checked it out before, I could get embarrassed. Luke 4, 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. English Standard Version. You say, well, what did Bob Jones use before they went to the English Standard Version as they continue to change Bible versions? They used the New American Standard Version. Let's try it. Luke 4.4. 4. I haven't checked this out, so I could embarrass myself. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The Lord has shown us over 20 one-word arguments. A one-word argument in the Bible is not when we pick one word and make an argument from it. This is very, very important for you to appreciate what we call one-word arguments. It is not when we pick a word and make a big deal about it. A one-word argument is one word in the Old Testament that Jesus or Paul or Peter picked and made an argument from it in the New Testament. That is a one-word argument. 
One of those is John 10, 35. Psalm 82, 6 says, I called you gods. Gods is the right word. I will develop an argument that I have a right to be called the son of God by the fact that your magistrates are called gods from one word. We have over 20 of those that God in his great mercy has shown us, and that is why we are like we are about the word of God. Amen. Now, I just can't let this Bible go. New King James Version. New King James Version. Now, the New King James Version, in order to get a copyright, had to make a few changes to the King James Version so that they could get a copyright on it so that Thomas Nelson could get rich off it. Nobody else can publish this. The King James Bible is a public domain. You can print it off the internet. So they had to make a few little changes. Well, what do you think they did? In Galatians 3.16, Paul wrote and said, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. Singular four-letter word, seed. It saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one seed, which is Christ. So, Galatians 3.16 is saying the Old Testament in the promises to Abraham must use a four-letter singular word, seed. Or, it's not scripture, and we're appealing to some book that doesn't belong in the Bible between the same covers as Galatians. Are you with me? Okay, well, the King James Bible is totally consistent because all the promises to Abraham from Genesis 12, 7, that's the first promise, to Genesis 24, 7, the last promise is seed. Let's open the good book of Thomas Nelson Publishers. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. Let's get the first one. Galatians 3.16 is okay. That's the problem. They should have changed Galatians 3.16 if they were going to change Genesis. Amen. Do you understand that? Okay, here we go. Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Descendants. In Galatians 3, it says, The promises to Abraham were made to Abraham and his seed in the New King James Bible. But when you actually go look up the promises, it says descendants. That was the first one. Let's jump over the last one. And you're going to have to trust me, though I'm going to leave this Bible out for you, about the ones in between. Genesis 24, 7. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. Okay. Just to remind you that we have a special Bible. Amen. We have a special Bible. Thank you, Lord, for our special Bible and all that you've taught us about it. Jesus declared in this 35th verse, Scripture cannot be broken. He declared three things about the Bible. First of all, he showed the nature of Scripture, that it is inspired at the word level, and we can argue it from the word level, thus our 20-plus one-word arguments. Second, if we find an internal contradiction in a Bible, that Bible isn't Scripture, for Scripture cannot be broken. That's why I used to carry some of these versions in my briefcase at the bank in hoping that I could find a Christian that wanted to go to lunch. I would happily pay for lunch if he would let me share his Bible with him. Because I wanted to show them their Bible could be broken. But first of all, I would set them up by asking them to crawl out on a limb with me. But I was near the trunk and I had the chainsaw. I want you to come out on this limb with me with John 10.35. Do you agree Scripture cannot be broken? 
Yes, it says it. Do you understand that it means the right word has to be there? Yes? Okay. And then we would go look up whatever verse we wanted to pick that day, whether it was who killed Goliath. This, this NIV. You know, the NIV came out in 1978, and this NIV has Elhanan killing Goliath. But enough people have copied a particular document about who killed Goliath that the editors of the NIV have come out in the last five to ten years and revised their Bible, and they have said, I guess that the three interpolated words of the King James Bible that are in italics are real, and we're going to stick them in to 2 Samuel 21.19. So if you get a new NIV, it's going to be right in 2 Samuel 21.19 because they don't like the heat, even though they know the words aren't there in their precious Hebrew text. Right. You say, well, how do we get them? By God's providence over the translation process. Amen. That's the argument of verses 34 through 36. Why are you accusing me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am the son of God, when you have men running around with far inferior offices to me being called gods. Right. Not just son of God, but gods. Verse 37, he jumps to his miracles. If I do not the works of my father, believe me not. Great way of reasoning. If I haven't done miracles by divine power, don't believe on me. You should be able to say to people, if you can prove me wrong, I'll deny the doctrine that I'm trying to present to you. You should be able to say that to them. Because you're arguing from a position of confidence, you know that you can prove it from a Bible. Jesus knew that his miracles were divine. And he said, if I do not the works of my father, he did do the works of his father. Believe me not, he granted them one of their arguments. But if I do, but if my miracles are from my father, though ye believe not me, though you don't like to hear me state it personally, I and my father are one, or I am the son of God, though you don't like to hear that from me, because I'm, I look like just an ordinary man, and you know I'm from Nazareth of Galilee, Believe me for the works that ye may know and believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him. He gave them an option. Believe the works, don't believe the works. They weren't going to believe the works and they wanted to take him again. But he escaped out of their hand like he did so many times because it wasn't his time. When it was his time, he just walked up to that mob in Gethsemane and said, I am he. They fell backward to the ground. A notable miracle was done again, but they got up and took him into captivity. But until then, he could walk right away from them, and he did. And where did he go? He went away again beyond Jordan. That means on the eastern side of Jordan, away from the Mediterranean Sea, away from Jerusalem, on the other side of Jordan, into the place where John at first baptized. We learned about it in John chapter 1 and 2. And there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. See, the people believed John the Baptist. They went out and were baptized by John the Baptist. Right. He had quite a following. And so here we are three years later. John told us about this man, Jesus. He told us he was the Lamb of God. He told us he was the Messiah. He told us he was greater than John. And John never did a miracle. This man's done lots of miracles. And everything John told us about this man is true. What kind of people were out there with him? 
on the back side of the desert. What kind of people were out in the wilderness? Were they the educated seminary graduates from Jerusalem? No. They were the common people that followed him. And notice the reasoning of a common person as opposed to the reasoning of those educated seminary graduates. They couldn't reason. Jesus, Jesus took them to Scripture interpretation or hermeneutics 601. He took them to a high-level course. Does it say in your Bible, I said ye are gods? Let's work on that for a moment and what that means. Let's exegete that passage and what it implies. They couldn't handle it, even though he led them through the process. Now we have a group of people that are flocking to him out in the middle of nowhere. John told us about this man. John, whom we have chosen to believe, didn't do any miracles. This man has done lots of miracles. And many believed on him there. Verse 42. This is one of the most obscure meeting places in Greenville. It's exciting. This is our resort. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that the beast of first pagan and then papal Rome, motivated by the devil himself, would try to destroy the woman, which is a picture of the true church. And he would give her the great wings of an eagle to fly away into a wilderness place and be kept there for a time and times and half a time. 1,260 years in the mountains of Wales, the western of the western part of the, of the island of England and in other places of the world, our ancestors in the faith were kept up like Jesus met these believers. And we could resort there And they did resort there, and the church of Jesus Christ prevailed and remained and is still here today. Some of those Wales Baptist churches called Welsh Tract because the whole church would migrate to America, came to Pennsylvania and Delaware, and to the P.D. River just a few miles from us right now where they were given a piece of property by William Penn, and they set up Welsh tracked Baptist churches and they spoke Welsh with each other because they had been in hiding out in a resort like this described here, which we're told in detail about in Revelation chapter 12 and Daniel chapter 7 because that great enemy of theirs made war with them and chased them out there and there were many, many martyrs as a consequence, but they survived and they came to America and we have the benefit of them today. This is the word of the Lord. Let us be thankful for the resort he has given us. And though the place be insecure, that's where though the place be not impressive, right. it's plenty secure. Mm-hmm. Though the place be not impressive, Jesus didn't go to a very impressive place, but many resorted to him and believed on him there. Let's believe on him right here. Jesus doesn't go to big fancy places. Jesus goes into the wilderness to find his people that are willing to resort to him there. And I'm thankful that you showed up this morning because you knew that we didn't have much except the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his word and with his spirit. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.